You're listening to And Then Some, a conversation with diverse thought leaders across sectors and the media, where we explore strategic communications, current trends, and how they impact us all. This podcast is presented by Solomon McCown and Sensi, an award-winning, fully integrated PR and government relations agency. This is And Then Some. Hello, everyone. I'm TJ Winnick. And I'm Reva Chessis. And this is And Then Some. Our guest today is not only a great journalist, but she is a great person. And I speak from experience because she is a former colleague of mine from when I worked as a broadcast news reporter. She worked as a reporter and anchor in such exotic locales as Coos Bay, Oregon, Boise, Idaho, and Seattle. And she was a Washington, D.C.-based correspondent for the CBS News Path Affiliate Service. She is an Emmy Award winner, a Murrow Award winner. She has been named the city's best TV personality and one of Boston's 100 most influential people by Boston Magazine. And Reva, she's on our podcast. It is our absolute pleasure to welcome in WBZ-TV anchor, Lisa Hughes. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Ah, Reva TJ, it's great to be here. Thank you. So Lisa, we want to get right to it. And, you know, you have covered just about every major news event in New England over the past 20 years. I mean, 2020 is is one for the history books. What has it been like covering the news during the pandemic? I'm curious, both from an editorial standpoint and also production-wise, whether you're in the set or at home, and, and how it's worked for you and all of your colleagues. That's probably, that's where we should start, TJ. It's been incredibly challenging, as you can imagine. Um, you know, just in terms of the infrastructure at the station, immediately after um, the kids were all sent home from school in March and people began working from home, the station changed dramatically. And I would say 80% of our staff began working from home and outside the building. And a very small group of us continued to come in. So my co-anchor, David Wade, and I have been in the whole time. We've never gone from home, which let me just tell you, with a nine-year-old and a puppy is a blessing for anyone who would watch WBZ. I am the last person who should ever be doing anything from home (laughs) on television. Uh, But some of my other colleagues have done it very successfully. But the idea was just keeping the numbers down um, and trying to make it possible to continue to cover the news. And photographers and reporters for a period of time were not allowed in the same vehicles. Now that everyone is masked, that happens in you know some instances. Um, but it just became incredibly hard. You couldn't do live in-person interviews. Everything was done or almost everything through Zoom. Um, we had to to limit our interaction even with editors who are masked in their edit bays. We have producers who rotate through the building. So we do a 90 minute news block from five to 6.30. In any given week, we'll have one of those three producers. There's usually a producer for each half hour, one producer in the building, the other two producing from home. The 11 o'clock producer has been producing from home since March. So it's, it's really different. I will say what's almost as incredible to me is that we've been able to do it. I mean, there was a period of time where if we had been forced out of our building because of an outbreak, we had set up a mobile studio in the parking lot. (laughs) So fortunately, knock on whatever wood is around me, we won't have to use that, but we have made contingencies for everything. And so far it's working. Covering this pandemic from a sort of a human perspective, 
is one of the hardest things I've ever done because unlike most other events, um, dramatic, traumatic um, history-making, there's no end here. I mean, we're so used to having some sort of a finish line. And even with the marathon bombing, which was a, a community-wide trauma, we began to have a resolution on that Friday when they arrested the surviving bomber. With this, our finish line is months away. And so it's a little bit like running an ultra marathon um, where they might change the distance at the end to make it even longer. And you just have to constantly get your head around that. And then just the, the nature of the stories you're telling, which uh, are, are really tough. And just one follow-up for you there, Lisa, with regards to how much you cover the pandemic and you balance that with other news, um, you know, in, in the viewing area, do you talk with your producers about how many stories should we do on COVID tonight? And how do you, you know, how do you play that off against other things that are going on, whether, and we'll talk about this more, but, you know, election coverage or the social justice movements and things, things like that. Yes. So we do have those conversations and the conversation is typically based to some degree on advances and then also the numbers. And we try to keep it very local. We know that the CBS Evening News is going to handle the national numbers. So for us, for example, uh, the Moderna vaccine, the 95% effectiveness in the late stage clinical trial, we know that's a huge story. So we're going to lead our newscast with that development. And we have the benefit of being able to talk to local epidemiologists and a participant in the actual trial. But then we had to decide, are we going to do more? And it felt bigger. And then the next story became for all of the hope this vaccine represents, there is a fair number of people that is suspicious of this vaccine. And so we went out and talked to people about, you know, will you take it? Why, you know, why wouldn't you take it? And then to um, people who will be involved in answering those questions for people. Should I take it? Should I not take it? So we have been trying to base the stories both on what we can do locally, uh, the, the developments of the day, and what the numbers are doing. And, you know, it was so great for a period of time in the summer and in the early fall when our numbers were going down. It just, it felt so good. You know, all those sacrifices that we made at the beginning really seemed to have paid off. And now, you know, we sort of bite our nails a little bit every day when the state's dashboard comes out to see where we are. We're still doing so much better than a lot of other states, but we are seeing the numbers go up. Yeah. And it's it's interesting, you know, to think about, as you were saying, how there's not really an end in sight, how the how the finish line, the goal line continues to move beyond what we had expected it to be previously. You know, it, it might feel right now pretty far out of reach to imagine what life will look like or feel like after the pandemic. But when we do look at life after this vaccine, after the pandemic, you know, what what do you think is going to be something that you remember most vividly about living through and, and covering the pandemic and this unprecedented year with everything that it's entailed? How good people could be to one another is one, particularly at the beginning when we saw there, there was need for food. We have so many people who have food insecurities and the way that people of all means would rush in to try to fill that gap. Um, I've never been more grateful, and I think we all have a new appreciation for healthcare providers and what they do every day um, and our first responders. I also think it's going to be really important, and I, I wonder if this will happen, but I hope it does. I'm putting on my hopeful hat here. You know, when this is over and we look back at it, because we all share the same experience to some degree, and we all had to make some of the same sacrifices, I think there's a good chance that we may not recognize 
the feat that it was to get through it. You know, and with any hard thing in your life, later on, doing that hard thing prepared you for the next hard thing. And hopefully we never have to go through a pandemic again. Hopefully this is a once in a lifetime occurrence. But I also hope that it makes people recognize the personal resilience that they have and what they had to tap into that they might not have even known was there, but that helped them get through this very difficult time. So that in the future, when we meet, uh, you know, challenges, either individually or as a community, we can say, you know what, we've got this. This is not easy, but look what we went through and made it through together in 2020 and a little bit of 2021. Yeah, it's almost like you you don't really know the strength that you have until you're, you know, you're against the wall, you're put in a position where you have to figure it out then and there in order to move past whatever it is that you're going through. I think that's a great point. Well, you both are talking about the best in people, but of course, we can't ignore that 2020 uh, has also brought out uh, the worst uh, in people as well. I'm referencing you know, what we've seen play out on social media, uh, especially around the election, which was perhaps the most contentious presidential election in our history. And I wanted to ask you, Lisa, you know, what it's been like, what it was like uh, covering the elections, whether it was the uh, local Senate Democratic primary between Ed Markey and Joe Kennedy, which got a lot of press nationally, um, or the presidential election, especially during the pandemic. And I know the final stretch of the election, um, you know, happened when numbers were relatively low here locally. But I'm just curious, you know, from a logistics standpoint, from making sure that, you know, your viewers were informed voters, you know, what was it like covering the elections? It was challenging from the standpoint that we didn't have access to to candidates that we normally would. You know, in, in a normal year, TJ, you'll remember on election night, for example, we would be at all the headquarters. We would be prepared to go live. We would have live interviews with the candidates. We would be talking with their supporters. And those kinds of interviews would be taking place in the weeks leading up to the election, certainly as well. We would have spent much more time in New Hampshire. We would have been talking to Massachusetts voters in person more about question one and question two. We did that, but we couldn't do it the way we normally did. And even on election night, I remember thinking how strange it was to be tossing to Ken McLeod, for example, in Needham outside Jake Auchincloss's headquarters with no people in front of a dark building. And it just, it, it's like, wow, this is so strange. It's so not the way we cover it. We also devoted a lot of resources to explaining what was involved in mail-in voting. In other words, when did you have to have your ballot and when did you need to have applied for your ballot? These were all new. So there were a lot of storylines. I mean, I will say that we were never at a shortage for storylines, things to explain, issues to explore. You know, the national media covered for example, so CBS Network covered the presidential race more, but we did have the president come to New Hampshire and we did cover that. So that was that, that was like a, a, a glimmer of normalcy in this very strange time. Um, you know, we, we didn't get to see, you know, President-elect Biden come because the, he wasn't able to travel much. So, you know, it, it was really, really weird. And to your point about, you know, the, the not so charitable moments of human nature, that was sort of soul crushing, um, you know, because here we are in the midst of something that's testing everyone. And it's understandable that people would be stressed. But, you know, 
it, it, we are, we are all in this together. And there were moments where it felt like, you know, people were going to tear each other apart. And, and that was so demoralizing that you would uh, honestly, like someone would raise on the call, like, well, I've got this really great story. I know, you know, it's a little light, but, and, and the person would bring the story up and it was this lovely, you know, example of humanity. We'd all be like, yes, we have to do that. You know, we need something that is going to offset the tone of acrimony that is definitely going to be at the beginning of our show. And, and we all know we need it. So that story will definitely make the air. <laughs> it's interesting that you, that you say that because we noticed that from the sort of the PR and communication side of things where we'd be talking to clients and we'd be like, you know, that would normally be maybe too soft to be covered by the news. But right now, you know, there are a lot of outlets, including WBZ, both TV and radio, that are really, you know, jonesing for some positive feel-good news. And so we did find opportunities when trying to, you know, identify um, the right platform for, uh, you know, a story uh, because there, there was an appetite for that, that kind of news when, when things were kind of dark. Yeah, maybe more, maybe more now than ever. I mean, you know, you just think about your own life, you know, you might be drawn to documentaries or serious movies or nonfiction. And right now, maybe you're, you know, watching Ted Lasso and, uh, you know, cartoons and you're hanging up your holiday decorations early. It's what people need right now. I know I do. <laughs> yeah. Or maybe you're watching Step Brothers for the 10th time. I'm oh just my saying. Gosh. Have you ever appreciated Step Brothers more? And by the way, Step Brothers gets a mention in Ted Lasso, which made me love it even more. <laughs> Tremendous. And I, I didn't even know that, but it's just, uh, <laughs> what a coincidence. It's actually Where a perfect up? segue because one of the questions that we had for you, Lisa, is what were some of the most memorable, inspiring stories or uplifting stories that you've reported on or heard you know, locally in 2020? Those things that really help to balance out, you know, what you were covering and, and some of the darker moments that we've experienced. There, you know, there have been a lot. And I would say sort of at the 30,000 foot level, the stories very early in the pandemic about people recognizing A, the food insecurity and B, what was happening to our restaurants um, and people deciding, okay, let's do this. Let's feed these healthcare workers and let's go to these restaurants and buy that food. Let's, let's try to to serve both sides of this. And just the immediate um, effort to make that happen, I thought right from the beginning was just, it was really uplifting and really lovely, at, particularly at a time where nobody knew what was gonna happen. And so it was that, what can I do for my neighbor? And it just sort of made everybody feel good to see it. And it reminds people, you know, there, there are things we can do that are not elaborate, but that make a huge difference in someone else's life. So I would say that was something very early that struck a chord with me and would help me get through, you know, long days. I'd say, wow, look at these. We have so many good people around us. And it's a wonderful reminder of that. Um, we did a story about a Norton woman whose mother, 90-year-old mother, was in a nursing home. And it was at a time when no one could come into the nursing homes. But the family could see that this woman was, was beginning to fade because she had no social contact with her family. Her daughter, who had been at one time a healthcare worker, applied for a job to do the laundry at night at the nursing home three days a week just so that she could be with her mom. And we were like, okay, that's phenomenal. Uh, the doctors and nurses at Newton Wellesley Hospital decided that as a way to pay tribute to the patients they could not save, each one of them 
who decided to do this would commit to run a mile. So it started with the chaplain. She was out for a run. She's like, you know what? We've had 104 people die between August and November 1st, which was All Saints Day. I'm going to run a mile for each one of those patients. So I'm going to run 104 miles. And she mentioned it to a friend at work. And he's like, you know what? I'll, I'll do that too. I, I, that would make me feel good. Well, by the time they were done, there were 150 people at the hospital who were running. And they would run with the names of the patients like on their hands or on their jerseys. They would tie them you know, in little ribbons to their clothes. And I thought that that was really lovely too. And it gave me an opportunity. I, I very rarely get to do interviews in person. So many of them are Zoom, but I actually got to go mask up and go to Newton Wellesley Hospital and talk to those doctors and nurses and the chaplain. And that was lovely. Um, and then the, what was the Jake-a-thon? So uh, Jake Kennedy, who we just lost sadly to ALS, was this force in Boston. He was the co-founder of Christmas in the City and a wonderful physical therapist and a marathon runner. And when he couldn't run his virtual marathon in September, 26 people ran a relay from his old house in Situate to his physical therapy office in Boston, raising money for his home care. And his wife and his children were at the finish line. And it was just one of those things like, it was lovely. It was lovely. Like, I feel like I'm a puddle all the time now, but I'm just, it's just so nice to be able to shine a light on the stories of people who are just doing good things for other people. And there are a lot of them. Yeah. And, and, you know, you're really tapped into the community and, and I want to give a shout out because you are involved in a number of community organizations and charities, whether it's a uh, big sister, Boston, Spalding rehab, boys and girls clubs of Dorchester. I know you've raised money uh, for the pan mass challenge, or you've done the pan mass challenge and raised money for, for Dana Farber or for the American liver foundation uh, through the marathon. And you know, it, it has been inspiring how the causes that folks typically raise money for year round during a normal year, they're so much bigger than just one event, right? There's just, there's a drive in people. And so, you know, I, I'm on a couple of boards. I've seen, you know, virtual fundraisers. Um, you know, a lot of people, we have a colleague who ran a virtual marathon uh because she was raising money for a particular charity through through Boston and wanted to still be able to do that. So she ran her 26.2 um, in another way. And so, you know, that that does show, I think, people's fortitude and, and drive. And that's been really great. Yeah. And, you know, all of those events, they create a sense of community and we're all missing that right now. And to be able to tap into that in some way, I think reminds us, you know, A, what it was like before all this happened, but that we can still, in a different way, create community and celebrate these things we love. And so, you know, in some ways, even though they're very different, um, actually doing them, and boy, I give your colleague huge credit because running a marathon, that, that I think is even harder than getting on a bicycle for sure. <laughs> you know, like, that's really, you got to dig deep for that one. So I give your colleague a lot of credit, but I think being able to tap into that sense of community is helping us get through this. Right. And it, it, you're right, because it's harder to run 26.2 or to, to bike all that way without the camaraderie and the support of your fellow participants. Right. So, um, yeah, amen to that. So we, we wanted to ask you, you know, what Boston might look like post pandemic. And I guess, you know, we've seen a lot of studies about people that will continue to work from home. So 
perhaps not quite as many office workers. Obviously, that would have a residual impact when you're talking about restaurants, banks, other businesses that cater to all the folks working downtown or in different parts of the city. But I'm just curious how you think Boston might look different or or will it look any different? Will this be a distant memory at some point soon? And, you know, we'll all be back to our normal lives. I wish that it would... I wish that we could flip a switch. I mean, obviously, you know, if we all, if we could wave a magic wand and return to life as we knew it, I don't, I think many of us didn't realize um, how many good things we had. I mean, what we took for granted. Unfortunately, I, I do think that the, there is going to be a lag time between, you know, the, the point at which we have 50% of our population vaccinated and our return to quote unquote normal. I think we're going to lose a lot of restaurants, which breaks my heart because Ross, Boston is, such a great restaurant city and the restaurant community is so incredibly generous. So, you know, to see the hit that it has taken has been really tough. But I, I do think that, you know, we are in for a period of real discomfort. You know, you look at the MBTA talking about the need because of a, you know, a 500 plus million dollar deficit to get rid of the ferry and to cut schedules. And all of that affects the way the city looks and feels and operates. And so I do think it will be longer than any of us wants it to be before we are back to a place of normalcy. I also think that there will be um, a real effort to to return to those things, to when, once people feel that the, the ground is solid again, to begin to the extent that they can to support all of these different places, initiatives, businesses. But I but I worry for a while that it, it's it's still going to feel it's going to feel strange even after we begin to regain our normalcy. That makes a lot of sense and I think you're you're I think you're probably right about that that you know that people are going to have to just understand that it's that it's going to be a process to get back to a semblance of of what we were used to and and that's okay and I, I agree with you that I think we're going to see more um, hopefully on the other side more innovation and more creativity as a result of what's unfortunately uh, you know going to be some business closures and things like that on that on that line just one last question for you uh, that we had and wanted to ask was what do you think? might be some of the positive stories or events and things that we can expect next year, um, including hopefully the rollout of an effective vaccine. But, you know, as we look forward to 2021 um, and we start to hopefully, you know, go and and be on the other side of of this pandemic and of the worst of, of everything will hopefully be behind us. What do you expect to see in terms of positive stories and things? I do think that people will return to the things that they love with vigor. For example, I think um, I think concerts will sell out quickly. I think people are clamoring to hear live music and to go to the theater and even to be in movies again. Um, and you know, maybe it will seem a little strange at first, um, but but those are the those are the activities that you know art touches your soul and it makes you feel so good when you experience it that I think people are are clamoring for that and will return to that um, you know very passionately. I think that I think we 
you know, we've learned that we probably should be checking on each other more. I mean, I know even in my neighborhood, you know, we all like each other, but we never had a comprehensive neighborhood list before. You know, I think people might be more aware of the people in their universe who they may not be best friends with, but people they'll check in on, um, friendships that were created. So in some ways, we might have a more more united city, a city that's even more committed to healing the the, the wounds of the past year. Um, I, I, let's see. I think... Um, I think we're going to see people respond to charities and initiatives and events um, with a with a lot of vigor as well. You know, recognizing that people are in need and am I in a position now where I feel like I can do more? I want to do that. I think there. It's been such a lousy year, but I do think that there are things that will come of this that maybe we wouldn't have stopped to appreciate had we not been forced to do so. And if we can keep that feeling going, um, it will, it will bode really well for our future as a city and how well we take care of one another. Lisa, thank you so much. That's a, that's a great place to, to end our conversation. We, we so appreciate you uh, taking the time and, and sharing your insight and, um, a little bit about what the past year has been like for you and, and your colleagues. Oh, pleasure. TJ Reva, it's been so nice to talk to you. Absolutely. Thank uh, we you. wish you, we wish your family and, and your colleagues all the best. Yes. Thank you, Lisa. And lastly, before we go, we like to end every episode with a PR pro tip. And this time that tip is a best practice for when you or someone in your organization has agreed to be interviewed by a member of the media. You should always make sure to go into every interview with a few key messages you want the interviewer to remember, no matter what the questions are. Think about it like this. If you could guarantee that the interviewer would only remember three things from your conversation, what would they be? If you're the one being interviewed, ask yourself that very question. What are the most important key messages I want to be sure to convey during this conversation? And then make sure to insert those points into the discussion, either in response to a question or by creating an opening for yourself with a transitional phrase, such as the question no one is asking is, or if you only remember one thing from our conversation, I want it to be this. Similarly, if you're preparing a client for an interview, make sure to go over those key messages and those bridging or flagging tactics for naturally inserting them into the conversation. It might help to position sharing those messages as a goal. That goal being to touch on all three key messages at some point during the conversation. This way, you're all but guaranteed that they will make their way into the discussion and hopefully be used as a quote or soundbite in the resulting piece of coverage. With those key messages in hand, you'll never feel unprepared going into an interview. And of course, the more you practice ahead of time, the more comfortable and confident you'll be. Um, And we wanna thank all of you for listening to And Then Some. We will talk to you all soon.